ಭಗವತೋ ಅರ್ಹತೋ ಸಂಭುತಸ ನಮೋತಸ ಭಗವತೋ ಅರ್ಹತೋ ಸಂಭುತಸ ನಮೋತಸ ಭಗವತೋ ಅರ್ಹತೋ ಸಂಭುತಸ ಅಪಾರುಥಾದೈಸಂಗಮತಸವರ So I thought the, this afternoon I'd reflect on the experience of inspiration and desperation because we all go through these phases in monastic life, in lay life. It's part of the human experience. So many of us, most of us, I'm sure we're drawn to monastic life out of inspiration. We feel interested, inspired. We hear inspiring talks by monks, nuns, teachers. The scriptures themselves, the suttas, can be, are very inspiring. The teachings of the Buddha inspire. So what is this, this inspiration? Is it, it's an a condition that we experience and we all long for. We want, we long to be inspired by life through, in, in worldly ways, in spiritual ways. And of course it is, you know, it's like sweets. Uh, it's, uh, they're delicious, tasty, and we like, we enjoy the flavor that, The taste of sweetness is like inspiration. So we like that. We, when, we, when we're no longer inspired, then it's a diet of food that is bland and tasteless. So inspiration is necessary because uh, you know it's uh, it's like one of the pleasures of our human condition to be inspired by beauty by the love of life by beliefs uh, in inspiring images and conditions <clears throat> and without inspiration we tend to get depressed or despairing desperate so the uh, just to bring attention to to these very human experiences they're not special conditions for just samanas marriage for example marriage between a man and a woman can it, it usually starts from inspiration hope expectation looking to the future with love and enjoyment of each other, what we can imagine, what you can imagine when you're inspired. You can imagine all kinds of wonderful experiences for the future and hope for them. And yet, being born is, uh, means that you grow up and you get old. And old age is not an inspiring condition. Old people can inspire when they're not just bound and limited by the attachment to an old body. Desperation in, in life is when we, we, we feel we failed, we, uh, we, 
what we've hoped for, imagined in our life as a samana, in our life as a married family and so forth, when you all the inspiring images, imaginations that we create in the mind are no longer arising. It's just like a failure, hopeless, I can't do this, I'm no good, the self-critic comes in and starts spilling out all kinds of nasty accusations and suggestions that make the summoner life quite depressing. So then, you know, you hear people, through my many years as a bhikkhu, you know, I've heard so many monks and nuns being, you know, I've seen the level of inspiration and desperation and heard their views about themselves and about the convention itself. Some were disappointed with the convention, disappointed with uh, so many things, teachers, leaders. So this is, uh, the world is, is as it is, as the Buddha very skillfully kept pointing out to us. It's not about eternal spring and sweets, but about the experience of old age, sickness, and death. About boredom and despair, about failure. You know, the, the introvert and personality tends to blame themselves. It's my fault, me and culpa kind of conditions arise. My failure as a monk is, I can't do it, I'm not good enough. And so this is, this is, uh, I'm not ready for this. Or the other type of personality will blame if the, the, the uh, tradition has disappointed me, it's not what I expected. I was expecting it to be much better than what I perceive. And so the, 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 the tradition itself, the monastic forms, are disappointing me. They're, they're not as good as I thought. They're not suited to me. So these two extremes, either blaming yourself for being unable or blaming the external conditions for not living up to your expectations or hopes. So that's why the whole Buddha teaching, as I've emphasized over and over again, the Four Noble Truths and the suttas are reflecting on this. They're not, they're not, you know, even when we love the scriptures, we get bored with them. When we've read them so many times, we've heard various, uh, very inspiring talks, sermons, desanas from, from really skilled Buddhist teachers. But how many times can you listen to a, to a talk, a Dhamma talk, or read, read a sutta and get inspired by it? You know, so boredom is, is a condition that arises. It's not a state that one, uh, you know, chooses. But it happens to all of us. Everything becomes boring after a while. The, the whole lifestyle that once inspired me became very boring, routine. And that's where I really developed insight, was when I was no longer inspired. When I wasn't dependent upon inspiring teachers and conditions and things I completely approved of. You know, the perfect monastery set up in the perfect way with the perfect teacher is an imagine, is imagination. That's not the way life is. There isn't any perfect monastery, perfect man, woman, perfect human individual, because these very forms, 
that we identify with is they're imperfect. Because they get old, they get sick and die. The form themselves, the human body. You can't perfect it. There's no way that that's possible. You can, you know, hope that modern science will come up with new kind of drugs and medicines that will preserve youth and beauty. And so this is hoping in the present moment that, that we don't, we, we know we're getting old, but, but uh, we hope to uh, slow down the condition or hopefully at the best to stop it totally. Lives a physically perfect form, a perfect female form or male form for a lifetime, for thousands of years is proliferation of, of an extreme sort. It's not based on observation, on reflection, on wisdom. It's based on delusions that you have about yourself and, and the world that you live in. So the, today I was listening to the news and um, heard somebody complain about how could God allow this, this uh, war in Ukraine to go on with the slaughter of people, children, women and children. And uh, they always mention women and children, but men are getting slaughtered too. And, uh, you know, there's something wrong and it shouldn't be this way. And ever since I remember, I grew up during the Second World War, you know, when I was about 10 or 11 years old. You know, I was brought up as a Christian. I wondered how could God allow the Second World War to happen? How could he allow six million Jews to be exterminated? They were God's chosen people. You know, so this is a question that a child, uh, you know, asks himself. And it's a fair enough question. But in Buddhist meditation, we're, we're not looking for, we're not trying to create perfection or imagine a perfect divine form or, you know, somebody, all-compassionate deity that that fixes all the problems we have with ourselves, with the society, with the world that we live in. But we're noticing, we're beginning to awaken to the world is about change. Like war has always been a part of the human condition. Why can't we just get along with each other is another good question. Because rationally, you know, if everybody was uh, had the same rational conditions that I have, we'd all be getting along. But even in a monastery, we don't all get along. You know, we have various views, opinions that we cling to very strongly. And we can have crises and problems, wars, they don't... Fortunately, we aren't into slaughtering each other, but but the uh, energy is there, desire to annihilate, to get rid of, exterminate that which you don't like and don't agree with. So in reflective awareness, sati-sampatanya, conscious awareness, we're witnessing this. So this is a witnessing, what is encouraged is witnessing. So the Mpocha's method of puto, which is the knowing in the present, it's like this, is witnessing the way it is, both externally and internally. So sometimes we, we're very much aware of witnessing, observing the, the political system, the society, the, uh, the various problems in 
uh, in human con- con- human conditioning, and uh, we have very we have been conditioned from an early age after we're born to have certain views about right and wrong, good and bad. So this is, uh, you know, you're brought up in a certain moral convention, religious convention, or even as an atheist or whatever. It's a conditioning process to the innocent child that's taking place. So, like a child, is not doesn't have an ego. It hasn't an identity until it's given one by the mother, father, family, society that they are born into. So I was asked recently about the ego, and. Uh, in Pali terms, we call that sakyaditi, a sense of a separate self-identity with the with the form, the human shape, the body. <clears throat> and when we identify with the body, it's all the how we've been conditioned to see it. You didn't choose the conditioning that you received when you were an innocent child. Innocence is pure. You know, it doesn't see itself as a boy or girl, or black or white, or good or bad. It doesn't have these words, it doesn't have a language to think in. So people are brought up with very prejudiced views about what's right and what's wrong, and who's the best, who's superior, who's inferior. And we all have this conditioning, because it's part of the worldly problem, why we can't get along so well. Because we have strong views about right and wrong. About religion. So many problems these days are around religious views. Going to war with religion and politics getting mixed up. Did God, was he an anti-communist, or was he against socialism, or was God a, a pure Democrat, or, you know, these are, we don't ask these questions usually, but yet we take a stand as if we, we were given the, this conditioning that, that we received in youth, in childhood, that we don't recognize for what it is, we operate from it. So there's all kinds of problems arising from the ego, the separateness, the the worldview that we've been conditioned to use and ex- and explain life's experiences. So is there a superior race? You know, this is back in. In the time of the Second World War, there was this, this, these perceptions about superior race and inferior race. Who creates these words superior or inferior and apply them to experience, you know, what we prefer to think and what we've been told to believe? Which are superior, men, male, or female? Are they equal? These are words that, that are, like modern words, are, are very idealistic about equality. We're all equal the same. But yet many of us were brought up in the idea that men are strong, women are weak, the weaker sex. And these perceptions still persist to this day. But they are perceptions. Problems today about same-sex marriages. That wasn't a problem when I was a boy. Nobody even considered that, that I knew. But the conditioning of that time was that marriage was between a man and a woman, 
and that was considered right and noble and good. And two people of the same sex, they was not allowed to get married. It wasn't right. God didn't allow it. Now all this is conditioning. We, we, we can't help ourselves when we, not, we aren't witnessing the conditioning for what it is. And this witnessing is very much, uh, you know, a non-critical function. It's just puto, awareness. It's like this. When I was born, the British Empire was the world's power. So my mother and father told me the sun never sets on the British Empire. So we always we had this perception from an early age about Britain being the superpower. Now it's a disunited kingdom off the coast of Europe. You know, it's not a superpower anymore. You don't apply it in those kind of perceptions to the United Kingdom anymore. But I was conditioned to think of it as a superpower for that time. So, you know, as you live your life, you grow older, you see the changes that develop. And a lot of them are upsetting. They upset us because they're going against uh, our own sense of what's right and what's wrong or how things should be. And that's the way the world is. It's in this inexorable changing state. You can't stop it and make it perfect as much as we might try with modern science, with reason and logic. The witnessing, being the knowing in the present moment, it's like this. Notice it's not critical. It's not preferring one thing over another. Like this moment, at this very moment, sitting here in the temple, it's like this. You know, can we, we can think of maybe we'd like it to change or stay this way. You know, but that's more... Uh, proliferating thinking, you know, uh, in the present moment. The, when it's like this, you're not doing anything with it. You're just observing. Experiencing conscious awareness is like this. Without a thought, without a judgment. And if thoughts arise, like, we, want it, we don't want it to be like this, we can be aware of that. Or if we want it to stay like this, then we can be aware of that. That awareness is non-personal. It's not a creation that you acquire through cultural conditioning, through the, through the ego. So in, in uh, Pali words, we call it Dhamma. In Thai, they have a very nice way of talking about nature, Tamachat, what's natural. This moment is Tamachat, it's natural. It's like this. Whether it's a pleasant moment or unpleasant moment, whether you're feeling strong and healthy or sickly or you're, you're mentally disturbed or you're feeling inspired, or you're depressed and desperate, it's like this. And if you trust in this awareness, <clears throat> then we can deal with the changingness of the conditions around us. We can adapt, we can learn from change, not from illusions, Imagine images that we create in the mind, no matter how beautiful or perfect the images might be. Because images are conditions. You can't sustain an image. 
you imagine it and it, it's present and you and maybe get inspired by that image and then it you can't sustain that inspired feeling and the image that inspires you because all conditions are impermanent. And that's the way it is. Is it wrong? Should there be permanent, perfect conditions? Well, we can imagine that, you know, permanent conditions that are perfect, uh, that are sustainable through, through modern life. The planet that we live on, is it, it's changing. Can we stop it from changing? You know, and then you, you hear about the history and development of the planet Earth in a vast universe. It's very mysterious and rather scary. So everybody, you know, ever since I remember, there's always been predictions about the end of the world. And now we have, after World War II, the development of atomic weaponry, nuclear weaponry. You know, war is more scary than it ever was. Because you can annihilate millions of people at once. So just that image itself, you know, why can't we just all agree to get rid of nuclear weapons? And that's a very good idea, but that's not what's going to happen. Because people bound to, the, to their delusions are frightened, scared. Life is scary, basically. The future is unknown. And there's so many unpredictable possibilities for absolute misery in the future. Old age is scary, death is scary. Being a, a monk or a nun can be scary because we're, we're living in a convention. We're trying to live within a structure we didn't create in a tradition that to many of us is, comes from a different age, a different time, different country. So this is, you know, then the ideas that we have about the inspiration of the Buddha, the enlightenment, getting rid of suffering. But is the whole point of the Buddha's teaching getting rid of suffering or understanding it? So the actual insight is to understand suffering. So we learn a lot from desperation, from despair, from failure, from doubt, from worry. And this is where many, you know, speaking about my own experience, many insights came through the boredom, through despair, Things not being the way I want it. Being disappointed by other people. Loss of loved ones. These are all human experiences that are not, you know, just apply to, to me, but to all humanity. So why does God allow the, the war in Ukraine And, you know, that's a question that, you know, then he should do that, yes, according to, to the perception of an all-powerful deity that has control of everything, that created everything. Those are the images that we have of, of God, as, or we believe, which is hopeless, you know, humanity's like this, and you can't really do anything. You can be kind of cynical and bitter, negative, become an atheist. So these are the, the extremes that take place in the human mind. 
But are we these extremes? Are these extremes what we really are, you know? So in this reflective meditation, we're asking ourselves, who am I? What am I really? You know, am I really this human form? Is this my soul identity? It's never been perfect enough, even when I was young. I always imagined it could be better than, than how I visualized it, how I saw it. Why didn't God make me perfectly healthy and handsome according to the highest standards? Why did God create ugly people, disabled people, deformed people. Why does, why does God allow this? Is a kind of useless question. Because we create this image of God as someone who has control over everything. Or is the world like this? Can, is there one force, one entity that can control it and make it perfect? And of course, when we think like this, you know, then we can imagine some kind of uh, metaphysical force or energy in the universe, pray to it. So that's one way of, of getting by in life, or to understand, to understand suffering, learn from it. So that's the, the, you know, when many of us were drawn to this particular tradition in the Theravada Buddhist school, it's very, you know, there's the, the main teaching, the Four Noble Truths. To understand suffering, understanding, conscious awareness isn't, doesn't suffer. It's aware of suffering. So physical pain is like this. Having a high fever is like this. Feeling despairing personally like a failure or not good enough is like this. Blaming somebody else for my suffering is like this. So these words, it's like this, are, is, a, is a useful tool. It's, it's words, it's like, any other words, but it's non-critical. It's, it's a help to open to life, to observe it. That this, moment, this moment can only be like this. But it's the moments, anything time-bound, born, begins and ends, born and dies, is in the process of change. Imagine being a permanent baby for a hundred years. You know, that baby is innocent, pure. But who wants to stay a permanent baby for a hundred years? You know, that's not a, a, a very pleasant image to have in your mind. So growing up, the process of maturing, physically maturing from from infancy to teenage and on to old age, is a process to learn from. And it's it's you know, there's, is there one perfect age? When I was twenty five, I still managed to suffer a lot. Because of what? Because of other people? Because of deprivation? I don't I have a, you know, because of mistreatment by others? No, because of just the inner critical mind relentlessly finding fault with what I thought, the way I looked, the way I was. You know, it seemed to go on and on in a, 
you know, in a non-stoppable way. There's something wrong with me. Not, I'm not perfect. I'm not normal. There's something missing. These kind of thoughts. The inner critic, it, it loves to make these images, creates them in consciousness, and we grasp them. And then we try to do something to to make ourselves better or perfect. We go to gurus or take up yoga courses or join a religious cult or become involved in good works or all kinds of ways of trying to make life better in ways that one can respect oneself as a separate individual. But no matter how good you might be, how virtuous, how kind, how compassionate you might be as an individual, if you don't understand suffering, you know, you're still caught in the delusions of samsara, of the world around us. And this is why in Buddhist in Buddhist countries, they talk about the world being a delusion. <clears throat> and I remember when I first being an illusion, as well as a delusion. And, you know, on a personal level, my rational mind, my senses told me the world is real, reality. It's these, this is a solid building. It's, this is a, you know, planet Earth, with mountains and oceans, continents. This is the real world, is modern society. And the ideas of progress and development, civilization, democracy, were, you know, were words that very much were instilled in me and which I believed in. And to think of it as illusion, you know, I found that quite difficult to handle intellectually or to understand it. Living in Thailand is a living in Wat Bapong in Ubon, Northeast Thailand. Was that an illusion? Did I just imagine that? Because when I think of illusions, I think of Im Im images I create in my mind. So the Buddha emphasized awareness sati, the word sati. So that's the first, very first factor of enlightenment be aware. What is aware? Is it analytical? When we talk about mindfulness or awareness, is it to analyze and figure out intellectually that is this world that we experience through the senses, is it the real world? Uh, what's illusory about it? We can create illusions around the world that we live in about ourselves and the society. Mental illusions, they seem more fleeting, ephemeral, less stable. Am I an illusion? Is Ajahn Sumato an illusion? You know, so, so then in terms of, the ego doesn't like to think of it, can't think of itself as an illusion. You know, so this is a, a important thing to see, you know, I'm a member of society, I'm a member of the Sangha. Is this all illusion, delusion, or what is it about? So in reflecting on Dhamma, the way things are, Dhammachat, the natural way of things, the Buddha pointed out so skillfully the impermanence of conditioned phenomena. So this is a kind of basic teaching that we all hear over and over again, so pay sankarani, all conditions are impermanent. 
And then we're encouraged to investigate that. Dhamma vichaya. To investigate. Is it really an illusion or is it, you know, with mindfulness and this reflective use of a, through conscious awareness, we begin to see the, the changing conditions. They have no core, no heart, no soul. You can't find perfection in changing conditions. You can't find salvation or enlightenment through self-view, through sakyaditi. So, we, what is it that is aware of changing conditions? So this was a question I always like to ask myself, what is this awareness? It's aware of changing conditions. And then I'd ask myself, can one condition be aware of another condition? Or when I'm aware of you as an individual, is that a condition or is the awareness unconditioned? Sati Sampatanya. Conscious intuitive conscious awareness is what the Buddha really is. So this is the ability that we have as individual forms caught in the illusory realm of samsara. We have this invitation, this encouragement to investigate it, not to annihilate it, condemn it or deny it, but to observe it, the witness of it. The knower, it's like this. And that knowing is impersonal. It's not like something you cultivate through meditation. It's not something that you've got to get, that you, you, you know, some idea that you have about mindfulness and clear comprehension as some ideal state that you've got to find and develop and get, because that whole way of thinking is based on sakyaditi, on belief. So the awareness itself is tamachat, it's natural. We don't create it. And that's why it's, we can trust it. So, cultivating this trust is this constant reflection on the way things are. At this point, Amravati is like this. When we think about Amravati, you know, in many ways it's changing physically. And this change, you know, how you feel about the changes taking place at this monastery, rebuilding it, and so forth. Whatever you're feeling, it's like this. We're not saying, or telling you, or trying to convince you that you think it's good, or you, know, or you, you form a, a, another view against it. But the development, physical development, changing conditions are like this. How I feel about it is like this. And just that kind of witnessing is something you can trust because it's not taking sides or not, you're not trying to convince yourself, you're not trying to believe everything is, is the way it should be, but it is the way it is, and that's a kind of truism you can't deny. So in monastic life, it does get depressing. You feel failure is a problem we all feel because so much of our efforts in meditation 
are based on sakyaditi, on the self. I've got to get samadhi. I've got to get insight. I, this this confused state, this this confused state of being, this doubting mind. I've got to get rid of it. Is it my fault? Is it not just me, or is it the fault of the tradition? You know. So then we, you know, we follow our beliefs. We might blame ourselves or the tradition or the teachers. But witnessing is like this. So if I'm blaming somebody for my discomfort, my unhappiness, it's like this. Blaming is like this. And suddenly I feel this sense uh, to observe blame, blaming somebody else for my state of mind, is like this. Is a way of letting go of it. Just this witnessing practice is is a way of liberating yourself from the habits of clinging to these perceptions, either through believing them totally or trying to resist them or deny them. So those are the two extremes. You either grasp something and believe it and go on the war path to fight for some cause that you that some noble cause or some sense of righteous what's right and what should be, or to resist that feeling, feeling a, a good monk should be content with the four requisites and not get caught up in internal uh, problems or crises. And these are all ideas that we might, that might pass through awareness, through consciousness. But who is the, what is that which is aware of this? Non-critical, just the puto, the, the observer. What is that? And as you question and investigate more and more, you see what it means by the world as an illusion. It can only be the way it is. We say it's the law of karma, cause and effect. The conditioned realm is all created through causes and has their effects. So the basic cause of suffering is attachment to these illusions without knowing what we're doing. When we believe the illusions are the real world, then we, we're, we're kind of stuck in that very limited perception and we wonder why God allows misery to arise in so many places and so many unfair, unwanted conditions happening. But expecting God to come and solve all the problems of, of each individual, you know, that's never going to happen. Because God is a creation. The word God is, is a perception. It's not wrong. But when we grasp the, the perception of God, what is God in reality? Then ask yourself. If we just dismiss God as a belief system that we think is superstitious or deluded, then we're, we're just proliferating endlessly with our critical mind. But when mystics or religious or spiritual beings that realize ultimate reality, what is it, what are you going to call it? You know, is it, you know, what kind of name do you apply to ultimate reality. Ultimate reality is not very inspiring. It's a bit barren, isn't it? Intellectual. Or you can have inspiring figures like, you know, in, in uh, Hinduism, the god Shiva or Brahma. These are all perceptions created by human beings. But what is, what is the 
reality of our experience. What is what is ultimate reality as we are can recognize that here and now, and not think that we we can't. If we believe we can't, then we're still bound into the ego, the sakyaditi problem, which will only take us to more misery. And no matter how hard we try to perfect life and perfect the world, you can't do it because the world is like this. So perfection is your very nature. It's conscious awareness here and now that is what we take refuge in. Mindfulness, call it mindfulness, awareness, conscious awareness. It's uncreated, it's unformed, has no form, it's invisible. It's here and now, and we're all experiencing it. But our minds, our thinking minds, can be in all kinds of other places at this time. So this, this uh, letting go, this relinquishing the world, is not a, a denial of it, or a annihilation, but an understanding the world is like this. Conditions are like this. Individuals have their own individual karmic conditions to live with. On the condition level, we're very different. Just our appearance and physical form and, and uh, gender, race, age, these are all different. They're not equal. The thing with the world is that Nothing's really equal in it. It's all about change, conditions changing. Because earth, fire, water, and air, the four basic elements, are about change. They have no permanent residence. They have no possibility for eternity. Because their very nature is to arise in space. So we're all experiencing space. We can, you know, we can, if we're sitting here in the temple, we think it's a big space. So without space, there could be no form. So, you know, just through these kind of teachings, space and the four elements are the world. And we can be conscious of the world because consciousness is what we are. And consciousness is, doesn't have any personal quality. You didn't create it. It's not culturally conditioned or really about religion or belief in God or atheism. But it's here and now, and something that we can totally ignore through sending our awareness, our conscious ability through the senses, always out to objects, through thoughts, through what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch. And we think we're creating endless thoughts, endless perceptions. The world is 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 dependent upon objects of consciousness so the the you know with eyes are are created for seeing objects and sounds ears are for sounds and so forth these are impermanent impersonal conditions that are imperfect is is we can lose our vision our sense of hearing and the sensory forms that that we observe through the senses change. But that awareness of change is something we're not culturally conditioned to do. You know, it never occurred to me till I discovered Buddha Dhamma of, of that as a possibility. It wasn't part of 
of the Christian religion or American culture. So this is uh, to encourage you, like samanas, monks and nuns, anagarikas and so forth, to, to learn from your, your, your experience here and now as you're living it. It's like this. The form itself that we use, the Vinaya and the precepts, are helpful means. They're not positions to take. They're not personal identities. So it's a skillful means to to learn to live life in a way that uh, the, there's the least amount of conflict. Just agreements. moral agreements, agreements about etiquette and so forth that we all agree to, so we call that Vinaya. So it's just a, a, a form, an impermanent, impersonal form, not to bind ourselves to as individuals, but to use, to observe how, you know, our personal tendencies, our habit patterns, our cultural conditioning, our fears, our, how we relate to, to each other. And without, you know, so it's, it's you know, non-violent form. So you can still feel violent, but the witness of the, viol of the violent feeling, you know, we refrain from acting on that, which is, you know, reinforced by the Vinaya precepts, which, you know, help us to remind ourselves we, we, we can't just follow our feelings and, and habit patterns the way we could if we were just free to react any way that we're used to reacting in critical moments. So this reflection is to encourage you all to see the, the, you know, how to use these conventions with skill and wisdom. Because it will, you know, is the, is the world an illusion? You know, I'm not telling, you know, I can say it is. Are you going to believe me? And, uh, you know, is it, what is it, what do we mean by the word illusion? Is, is, uh, is Mount Everest, is that an illusion, an imagination? You know, so we think of the solidity of Mount Everest or the mountains, the oceans, the continents. You know, we are informed through conditioning, cultural conditioning, through education, to have very fixed views about the world. But the Buddha knew the world, you know, investigated the world, and then the teachings he left after he passed away we're all pointing to the impermanent, unsatisfactory nature of conditioned phenomena. And that very teaching itself, all conditions are impermanent, is, is well, I encourage you to, to, to uh, reflect on that. It's a teaching worth investigating. All Dhamma is not self. Consciousness is not personal. When I create a person, I have to think, I'm Ajahn Samedo, then I'm separate from you because you have a different name, you look, 
you're sitting opposite me and I'm looking at you with my eyes and you're the object of my vision. Is this the real world? How I sit in this chair and see you, is, is that reality? Or is it an illusion? Or what is it? So we begin to investigate not, not, not to believe the world is an illusion, but it is a skillful suggestion of changing one's perspective from believing the world according to conditioning and investigating the world according to the way it actually operates as impermanent, unsatisfactory, and non-self. So I offer this as a reflection. <laughs> 